0: Uh, Heavenly Father, please help us as we do need help, Um, please meet us with the face of Christ uh, through these words. Uh, Yeah, please may Christ be blessing us where we need blessing and help us to leave here today, change people with our eyes set on Him. Amen. Uh, So last week we heard all about uh, Solomon's temple uh, that he built for the Lord and Solomon's palace that he built for himself. Uh, in our young adults group that Serena and I lead, uh, the opening activity, of course, it was her idea, not my idea. Um, we split the group into two, gave them a bunch of Lego. Half of them had seven minutes to make Solomon's palace, and half had 13 minutes to make, sorry, to make his temple, and 13 to make his palace. Um, here's what they came up with. Uh, I thought it was pretty uh, pretty brilliant, considering the activity and the the outcome. Um, this, this evening, we're going to be uh, sticking around that Uh, that palace, sorry, that temple, uh, the one on the left there, I'm getting confused already here. Uh, We're heading into 1 Kings chapter 8, it's the opening ceremony for the temple, Solomon, he's getting ready to cut the ribbon, Uh, but this is no ordinary opening ceremony. Uh, Sure, there are a few things we may expect in this opening ceremony, Uh, Solomon, he says a prayer of dedication, which we might expect, all the people, they throw a massive celebration for the temple being finished, which we'd expect, But if you read the chapter pretty carefully, you'll notice it kind of raises more questions than it answers. But before we get into the passage, here's how we're going to be working through it. Uh, We're going to see the chapter's kind of like a sandwich, uh, not literally, but uh, in in the sense that it kind of starts and ends the same way, then it works inwards and it works inwards, it kind of mirrors. We're going to see that it starts and ends with celebration, then inside that the passage moves to sacrifice, Then another layer in, Solomon prays for blessing twice. Then right at the middle, um, in the delicious burger patty heart of the passage, there's forgiveness. It's like this chapter was written in such a way to funnel us in to the middle, to show us how forgiveness really is the centre of everything that's happening here. But by the end of the passage, we're going to see how forgiveness is not only central in this passage, but it's the answer to every question that it's going to raise as well. So if you've got a Bible there, it might be worthwhile keeping it open as we uh, work through the passage so you can see all this for yourself. So the first layer there, the bread. So the first and last layer uh, is celebration, which is in the first two verses and the last two verses of the chapter. So if you look at the first two verses, Solomon, he gathers all of the Israelite bigwigs together for a big festival, Uh, But this isn't kind of a splendor festival, this is a festival to celebrate the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And you might recognize this Ark from Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it actually existed before that. Uh, We first hear about it in Exodus 25, uh, when God gives Moses instructions to build it. Now, this Ark is kind of like a special golden box to hold the stone tablets of God's promises that He gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it actually mentions that again here in verse 9. It says, nothing was in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites when they came out of the land of Egypt. So this ark holding the words of God, written on tablets of stone, and the priests, they carry this ark right into the middle of the temple. So I think this is very intentional that God's words are literally in the heart of the temple. But as soon as they carry it in, the scene, it starts to darken in verse 10. It says, when the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple and because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering for the glory of the Lord, filled the temple. And this is the pattern all the way through the Old Testament, whenever God's presence appears, that becomes a pretty dangerous place to be. Because it's a dangerous thing for sinful people to live with a holy God and the closer you actually get to God, the more dangerous it becomes. That was a picture on Mount Sinai, when Moses went in to speak with God, it was the picture with a tabernacle in Exodus, which was kind of a prototype of the temple, a kind of portable temple and it's the picture here with the temple, that there are different spaces in the temple with increasing levels of holiness, closer to God and increasing levels of danger. And whereas every church today has a sign outside saying, all welcome, Outside the temple, there's a big sign saying, don't come in here, because this is where God lives. It's a dangerous place to be. But even though it was dangerous, God's presence with His people was still being celebrated. And if we look at the bottom layer of bread there, at the very end of the passage, we hear how much celebration actually happened there. In verse 65, it says, Solomon and all Israel had a festival in the presence of the Lord our God for seven days, then seven more days, and after 14 days of celebrating, they blessed the king, went to their homes rejoicing with happy hearts for all the goodness the Lord had done for his servant David, for his people Israel. So the question remains here, how could they celebrate when it's such a dangerous thing to live with the Holy God? And the answer isn't clear yet, but as we keep moving towards the center of the passage, we're going to get more clarity on that. Which brings us to our second layer, to sacrifice, in verses 5 and 62 to 63, where we hear about all the animals that are being sacrificed before the ark, before the temple. And in verse 5, it says, there are so many sheep, goats and cattle being sacrificed, they can't even count them. But then in verse 63, they take a stab at it and say that 22,000 cattle, 120,000 sheep and goats were being sacrificed, which is pretty intense. And it gives a pretty bloody context for this chapter and the prayer that Solomon's about to pray. Can you imagine this scene, this new shiny golden temple just being opened and blood absolutely everywhere. The stench of blood in everyone's noses. Which I think maybe they would have said is a part of the answer to that question we just asked of how a sinful people could live with a holy God. Because remember, in Israelite thinking, animals, they weren't just sacrificed for kicks. They thought that the blood of these animals would do something to atone for their sins. And there's something to that. If you've ever read the Book of Leviticus, the third book in the Bible, there are all sorts of sacrifices for all sorts of situations, peace sacrifices, fellowship, burnt, atoning. But, if these animals really did take away their sins, then that raises a bigger question. Amidst all of these sacrifices, amidst the blood drenching the scene, Solomon never actually mentions them in his prayer. He never prays about these sacrifices doing anything, let alone atoning for their sin. Instead, Solomon prays that Israel would always be turning back to God and repenting to receive life. Which I think is a hint towards what the book of Hebrews teaches in the New Testament, Where it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But the difficult thing is, the book of Hebrews also says, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, but the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, so this raises a bigger question for us. How could the sins of Israel be dealt with if these sacrifices didn't actually do anything to take them away? Which pushes us another layer into the chapter, into blessing. Which is in verses 14 to 21 and 54 to 61, where Solomon says prayers of blessing for all the people of Israel, twice. And what does Solomon pray to bless the people? Well, verse 15, he says... Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He spoke directly to my father David. He's fulfilled the promise by his power. I have taken the place of my father David and I sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. I have provided the place for the ark. Remember, this is meant to be a prayer of blessing for God's people. He says, I have taken the place. I sit on the throne. I have built. I have provided. Now, it isn't crystal clear. It's one of those gray zones, but my suspicion is that this is another picture of what we saw last week, that Solomon's heart here isn't exactly wholeheartedly devoted to serving the Lord. Uh, Which kind of gives us a conundrum here. Yes, Solomon's right, everything he says is technically right. God has fulfilled all the promises He made to His father David in 2 Samuel 7. If you remember those promises, God promised that David's son would have a kingdom, David's son would build a house for God's name, check and check, and uh, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Uh, I don't know about that one. I guess all of Israel was kind of hoping at this point that this had been fulfilled, that there is an eternal kingdom happening before them. That's why they were celebrating so much. But as we've seen every week, Solomon's a bit of an inconsistent guy. Even in this prayer for this temple, for this house of God that he built, it seems like his heart isn't nearly as God-focused as it could be. And so I think if we have eyes to see, the promises of 2 Samuel 7 maybe aren't actually being fulfilled here. And if you're looking for words to describe what's wrong with this picture, then Solomon puts it pretty well in himself. Right at the end of the chapter, in verse 61, in his closing blessing, he says this, Be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in His statutes and to keep His commands as it is today. Which is a good thing to pray, but as we've already seen, and as we'll see again all too soon, Solomon himself doesn't really live up to this. His heart will soon sway from being wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, if it ever was to begin with. And the fact that these are his last recorded words in the Book of Kings, means this is going to be a sad irony that's echoing out over his final years, when his heart is definitely not wholeheartedly serving the Lord, and His Kingdom is anything but everlasting. But the question then remains, where were God's promises in 2 Samuel 7 pointing, if not here, of David's son, Solomon, building the temple? And to find the answer, and the answer to all the questions that we've had so far, we have to burrow in one more layer, into the heart of the passage, which is forgiveness. And when I said that it's the burger patty heart of the sandwich, it's maybe a double meat patty, because this is a massive prayer from verses 22 to 53, and it's kind of a curious prayer for a few reasons. Because given what we know of this scene, what would you imagine that Solomon would pray here? At the opening ceremony of the Great Temple of Israel, uh, well for me, there were two things I kind of expected to hear in this prayer. I expected him to pray, Lord may your presence fill this building and may your eternal kingdom be established from this day forth. But, Solomon doesn't pray either of these, he actually prays almost the opposite Of both of these as we'll see. Just looking at the first one, may your presence fill this building, just look at verse 26, Solomon prays, now Lord God of Israel, please confirm what you promised to your servant David, but will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I've built. This is the opening of the great temple that took seven years to build, the great fulfilment of the promises to David, that his son would build God a house. And here we are, David's son is praying in front of the house that he's built, saying, actually, we kind of all know that you won't really live in here, God. You won't fit in this house, you can't even fit in my house, which is even bigger. And it's like if you build your parents a house, uh, and then, when you, they go to move in, you actually say to them, uh, This house is probably too small for you guys, actually. I don't know if you could even fit in the door, let alone the house, um, but I hope you like it anyway. Uh, it wouldn't really do much for them, would it? Nothing on earth can contain God's presence, not a golden ark, not a golden building. And I don't know if you've used the phrase to describe yourself, I'm a seeker, I'm seeking God. Uh, Well, if you have, it seems like you're in good company because the great King Solomon seems to be seeking God in this chapter as well. Because he doesn't seem to know where to find God either. All throughout this chapter, he seems to be in two minds as to where God actually lives, in the temple or not. We hear that God's glory fills the temple, then Solomon says the temple is God's dwelling place forever. It sounds like, God is living in there, but then he prays, God, your presence can't be contained in this temple, and you dwell in heaven. So does God live in the temple or not? Solomon doesn't seem to know. when Serena and I had COVID a few months ago, one of our friends very kindly dropped a jigsaw puzzle at our house to buy the time. Uh, This was the jigsaw puzzle at Where's Wally? I kind of feel like it defeated the purpose when I picked up a Wally and said, oh, there he is, and we had 80% of it to go, but it was very uh, thoughtful. Um, But it almost feels like Solomon's uh, playing some kind of variation of this, of where's God, because he seems to have no idea. But even so, look at verses 28 to 29, where Solomon prays, listen to your servant's prayer and his petition, Lord my God, so that you may hear the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you today, so that your eyes may watch over this temple day and night, toward the place where he said, my name will be there. So Solomon, he's just prayed about the glorious uncontainability of God, the fact that God can't be contained in the highest heaven, let alone this building, but straight after he prays, Father, please listen to my prayers. God is glorious beyond our wildest imagination, but that doesn't actually lessen his intimacy with his children. Even though Solomon doesn't seem to know whether God actually lives in this temple or not, he's still confident that God is a good father, and he wants to hear his children's prayers. But thinking about that second prayer, I was kind of expecting to hear. May your eternal kingdom be established from this day forth. Well, for the rest of Solomon's prayer from verses 28 to 52, He prays through seven really difficult situations that might, slash will, face the people of Israel. And seven times, he asks God to hear from heaven and to forgive and to act. Which is a long way from Solomon declaring that the eternal kingdom has already been established. Instead, he seems to know instinctively this kingdom is far from perfect, it's going to need a lot of grace... A lot of forgiveness and a lot of work from heaven. And he doesn't quite pray through the seven deadly sins but it's still seven situations where Israel is in desperate need of God, mostly due to their own failure to keep His Word. And we don't have time to read it all out and go through them one by one but a very quick overview of those seven scenarios. Verse 31, when anyone wrongs their neighbour and when they swear an oath before your altar, Verse 33, when your people have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn back to you. Verse 35, when there's no rain because your people have sinned against you. Verse 37, when famines or plague come to the land. Verse 41, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, but has come from a distant land because of your name. Verse 44, when your people go to war against their enemies. And verse 46, when they sin against you for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies. He's saying, when we fail you, when we forget your word, when we're sick, when we're in danger, in desperate need, God, please hear our prayers, hear from heaven, hear and forgive. And as Solomon prays through these seven scenarios, it's almost like he's testing the bandwidth of God, It's like he's testing how far he can go from the temple and still have God hear. Because he starts out asking God to hear when they pray to the temple, then he asks God to hear in the city, then in the land, and finally, far from home. Which again, doesn't really make sense if God lives in heaven, not in the temple, because whether they're praying right in front of the temple or a million miles from it, they're still the same distance from heaven. And this was really hammered home to Israel when the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, not too long after this scene. And even when Israel, they tried to rebuild it, it was never really the same, so it really forced them to wrestle with this question of, what does a temple actually do for their prayers? What would actually happen to the prayers of God's people? Was it like when you go out of the city and your phone's certainly on zero bars and you don't know how to contact people, but you don't really need to, but you kind of panic anyway. Well, no, the temple was never meant to be an end in itself, just like the sacrifices weren't an end in themselves, just like God's promises to David weren't ended here. They were all meant to point us to a much greater reality. Everything we've seen in this chapter, celebration, sacrifice, blessing, forgiveness, they're all meant to point us to the greater Son of David, the greater sacrifice, the greater temple who was to come. So how could they celebrate when it's such a dangerous thing to live with the Holy God? Well, because even though God's promises hadn't been fully realized yet, by faith they could still set their hope on the day when Jesus would come and open a new way for people like us to have peace with God. How could the sins of Israel be dealt with if the animals didn't take them away? Well, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins, but that's pointing towards a sacrifice that could actually take away the sin. The perfect sacrifice, once for all of Jesus, when He gave His life on the cross, to take all of our sin on Himself, so that if we trust our lives to Him, He will give us eternal life. Where were God's promises in 2 Samuel 7 pointing, if not here, of David's son building the temple? God's promises of an eternal kingdom that was speaking more of Jesus, the true son of David, whose kingdom actually would last forever, who would build a greater temple where people could actually meet God, that could never be destroyed and where we can all walk right on in. This is how the book of Hebrews describes that, it says, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary, i.e. to walk right into the temple, through the blood of Jesus, He has given us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. So let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to that hope without wavering, since He who promised is faithful. This passage, it takes everything about the temple, the curtain, the washing, the sacrifices, the way to God's presence. And it says to us, yeah, it was all pointing to Jesus. Jesus how He would be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect temple, the way to God for us. Everything that kept us from God was atoned for by His perfect sacrifice, so we can actually walk boldly into the temple through this new and living way. In Jesus, we can stop asking that question, where is God? Because when we come to Jesus, we find God. And because of Jesus, we can actually put a sign up outside the temple saying, All welcome. And because of Jesus, in a manner of speaking, the phone line is always open. When worst comes to worst, God will always be listening. So when I stuff up again, Father, hear from heaven and forgive. When I lose my temper with the kids again, hear from heaven and forgive. When I give into temptation again, Lord, please hear from heaven and forgive. When I'm hurting and struggling, when my body's failing me, when my family and friendships seem broken, Lord, please hear from heaven and act. However you might fill in those gaps, fill in that prayer, whatever you might put in there, however far you actually feel from God at the moment, the promise in this passage is that because of Christ's death for us, we can always approach God and know that He will be hearing from heaven. Because of Jesus, whatever's going on for you, God will always be, (coughs) pardon me, will always be there. He will always listen. Because of Jesus, we've never gone so far that we're beyond forgiveness. Because of Jesus, we can have forgiveness and life, we're always welcome in our Heavenly Father's home. And because of Jesus, we can celebrate life with God. (coughs) Let me pray. Our Father who is in heaven and who is near to every one of us right now, we know that you live in the unsearchable, and the infinite. Your kingdom extends over spaces we can't even comprehend. Yet, Lord, you are our heavenly Father. (coughs) Pardon me. Your door is always open to us because of Jesus, the Son of David, the Son of God, who died that we might live as your children. So please wake every one of us up to that reality. Restore us to the joy of our salvation. Wherever our hearts are crying out now, for you to hear and to act from heaven, I'm going to give you a minute to just pray in your hearts, however you need to hear God, ask God to hear and act from heaven. I'm going to wrap up. Heavenly Father, please hear our prayers and give us grace. For Jesus' sake, we pray all these things. Amen.